Well, we are going to be in the book of Philippians for the next four weeks, and so I want to give you a challenge. I want to invite you to read the first and second chapter of Philippians every day for the next two weeks, and um, it'll take you about 12 minutes. Uh, if you just can't seem to manage that in your schedule, uh, then do uh, one every other day. How's that? But I, I really want to challenge you to do that because what that'll do is that'll help you really understand and know the book of Philippians. And when we're talking about it and when you're hearing me speak, and uh, as others will be teaching as well, uh, you'll already have a good foundation and those, it'll sink further and deeper into your spirit. And so I want to challenge you each day to read uh, Philippians 1 and 2. And then after we do that, we'll do Philippians 3 and 4. And uh, we'll, you'll understand and have a greater, greater appreciation for this great letter, one of Paul's most famous letters, his most positive. And uh, as we look at this letter, the, uh, I've chosen this title for today, The Choreography of God. The Choreography of God, that God is showing us how to live providentially through his spirit. So as we talk about it, it reminds me of when I was living in Louisiana, I was teaching school and coaching at a at a, a high school, public high school over in Louisiana, and I felt God had called me to go to seminary. I'd been talking with my pastor and talking with others and felt like I had, I had confirmation that this is what I needed to do, <clears throat> and so I decided, okay, I'm going to go to seminary, and I'm going to go to New Orleans next year, which was a great seminary uh, down there, um, and so I was preparing to do that, and I remember I went back for an alumni event at my school and uh, as I was leaving there, my truck wouldn't start. And so I had a friend that was there, and he was headed to Jackson, Mississippi, where my mother was. And I said, well, you know what? I'll just hop in the car with you here because she's there, and she can just bring me back, and I'll just leave my car here and deal with it another time. And so I did that, and on the way up there, um, I remember saying, Greg, why, why did you, he'd gone to seminary, why did you go to seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky? Why did you go all the way up there? I said, why didn't you go to New Orleans? And he said, well... Because New Orleans was right next to home. My family lived there, and, and I just felt like God was calling me out to trust him and to, to, to just go to a place that I had not been before and to trust him as he led me. And, and so I, as I was sitting there thinking, the reason I'm going to go to New Orleans because it's close, it's near home, and I know people there. That, that's the reason I was going. I was just thinking, I, did, I had not even prayed about where. I'd only prayed about should I go. So I began to pray about that, and I began to look at other seminaries. I looked at Louisville, and I looked at various seminaries. And I remember I finally came over here and looked at Southwestern. And when I was here, I remember after a chapel, just walking out on the lawn, and God just giving me a piece. It wasn't overwhelming by any sense, but this is what you need to do. So I came back and said, I'm going to Southwestern. I mean, if you had asked me a year before, I thought that was crazy. If you'd asked me uh, six weeks before. But God gave me this piece, I felt like, to go to Southwestern. So, um, you know, after, after the school year was over, I loaded all my stuff up in my Toyota Tercel, and I drove over here, and I got on, uh, I was looking for 35. I'd been here twice, and I see, oh, there's 35, and it was 35 East. I turn, it's about 4 o'clock, and it starts to rain, and I realize it's about 4.30. I'm in downtown Dallas, and I'm going, this is not right. And long story short, you know, Traffic comes to a standstill, and I literally roll the window down and ask this guy. I said, where's Fort Worth? He goes, <laughs> so this isn't it. He goes, this is Dallas. It's that direction. I go, great. And time after time, it felt like when I got here, this just wasn't right. It didn't feel right. I got here. I couldn't find a job. I was living in a dormitory. I'd already had my own place, and now I'm living in a dorm. And then I got an apartment, but it was a really low income, and it was not, there were a lot of problems. And then I couldn't find a job. 
I tried to get a job in ministry. I couldn't get one. Tried to get a job substitute teaching. Who can't get a job substitute teaching? I, I couldn't. I couldn't get anything. And I'm thinking, this just isn't right. I, I can't tell you how many times I thought, I've made the wrong decision. I just need to go home. And it didn't feel right. Ever been somewhere it didn't feel right? I'm just thinking, what am I going to do, God? What Finally, I did get a job. It was great. I got a job working at a retirement home, and my job was uh, 11 to 7, 11 at night to 7 in the morning doing security. My job was to make sure, not that people didn't get in, but that people didn't get out. And so <laughs> that's what I did from 11 to 7, and then I'd go to, to my classes in seminary, and I'd sleep through them, and then I'd get up and I'd do it again. And I just kept thinking, man, God, this cannot be right. This doesn't feel right. This is, I don't like this. I'm lonely, I'm frustrated, I'm broke, <laughs> everything. This cannot be where you look. I missed it somehow. But can I tell you this? In God's choreography and his providence, I wouldn't be standing here before you today if I had left. If I did not come or if I had quit, I wouldn't be standing here today. I wouldn't be at Rock Point. There might not even be a Rock Point. Who knows? But it sure didn't feel like I was at the right place at the right time at the right moment. You ever been there? You ever wondered? Here's Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he's a whole lot more mature than I ever was and maybe will ever be. And he's dealing with this, and he's writing this letter to the Philippian church. And 10 years before, here's what happened to Paul. 10 years before he writes this letter to the church at Philippi, he's in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's going to go east He's going to go east because there's some large cities there and cities that haven't heard the gospel, educated, powerful cities. He's going to go east. He's on his missionary journey. But then he has a vision. And the Spirit of God shows him a man in Macedonia saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. He already had a plan. He had already told Timothy, this is where you're going. He had already told uh, the, the, the believers who were supporting him, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. And God gave him a vision. And God closed doors here, and he opened doors here. So he leaves the area of Turkey and of Asia Minor and of that, that part of the world, the large cities, the thriving cities. And he leaves there, and he goes to a little place called Troas in Macedonia. And he's there for a little while. And then he goes on to Philippi. And when he gets to Philippi, there for, so far, the way that he would typically go in and start churches, he would go in and he'd find a group of Jews who were meeting in a synagogue, and, um, and he would get to know them, and he'd, he'd maybe teach because he was an expert in Judaism and, and the law and in the Torah. And so he would usually be invited to speak or he could talk to a group of people afterwards, but he couldn't even find a synagogue in Philippi. There wasn't one. This was really a Roman colony, and it was primarily Gentiles. So he heard about a little group over, in, over that met next to the river, and he met a couple of women over there, and one of the women was Lydia, and she was praying. She was a God-fearer, and he leads her to Christ. She didn't even know Christ, but she leads him, she, she, he leads her to Christ. And so then he's got one convert, and He's there in Philippi. He's starting to speak and to teach, and he's going around trying to share the gospel. And there's this little girl who is being used by uh, some men because she apparently has this gift that she can prophesy and she can see things that are to come. And so they're making a lot of money off this little slave girl. And when he sees her, his heart goes out with compassion, and he comes over and he lays hands on her, and he heals her. And after she's healed, uh, that spirit is gone. That demon is gone. And the owners become very angry, and they start to, to, to bring up charges against Paul. They have him beaten and thrown in prison. 
I, I bet you I was, I bet you was wondering, am I in the right place? Is this the right time? Is this what's supposed to be happening, right? Thanks for the beating. I don't think I would. We never have that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, to, want you to go do some good things, and people are going to grab you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to beat you and throw you in jail. But that's exactly what happened to him. And so that, that night, he is praying there at the first jailhouse rock uh, occurs because there's an earthquake that starts to, run, starts to tr- tremble, and sure enough, the, the gates fly open, the chains fall off, and the jailer, seeing this, takes his sword, and he's going to kill himself because he doesn't want to be dishonored, and he knows the penalty will be death anyway. And Paul stops him. He says, wait, no one is left. We're all still here. And Paul comes up and he talks to him and he begins to share with him. Later on, the jailer takes him to his house that night and the jailer accepts Christ and his family accepts Christ. And this is the beginning of the church. Think about it. There's a woman who really, they didn't really have hardly any rights at that time. Here's a little slave girl who's just been released because she's of no value and a jailer. And that's who's starting the church in Philippi. And he loves this church and this church does grow and it grows and Five years later, he comes back, and it's grown, and they're supporting him. They're partnering with him. They're supporting. They're giving him tithes and offerings, and now he's writing this letter to them, and he's writing it in a very positive tone. Many of the letters Paul writes, he'll start off well, but then he starts to chastise, but you don't see that in this book. You first see him, really, it's a thank you letter about the first seven or eight verses. And then he starts to encourage them. That's what's transpiring him, it's transpiring here. And he's doing this at the time where it is very difficult to be a Christian. Matter of fact, Nero is the emperor who's in charge. Nero, who some would say was the most wicked and the most vile of all the Caesars. He's the last of the Julio-Claudian emperors. There'll be another line that, that arises after him. Um, but he does not like Christians. Most, many people in Rome didn't like Christians at that time. You know why? Because the Christians would not give the emperor worship. Many of the, many of the people, matter of fact, went with Julius Caesar, he started that whole campaign that he was divine. He was the divine son of God, and he had statues put up all over, the, all over the Roman region and all over their territories. Statues would be put up, and there'd be a wreath on his head, and there would be different inscriptions, but some of these inscriptions would say something like this. King and king, Caesar, king of kings. Caesar, lord of lords. Some would say, Caesar, the savior of the people. And matter of fact, uh, we'll, talk, we'll see this in just a moment. You know if that word gospel means good news? That's what the Caesars would use. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Here's the new news that a new Caesar is in town, and he's going to bring peace and harmony and goodness to all the land. And he is to be worshiped and praised. He will be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He'll save the people. So when Paul is preaching this new gospel, this gospel message of Jesus Christ being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's scandalous, and there's a lot of resentment from the Caesars and from the people. And this is where Paul is, in prison. Let's pick up, beginning to read Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ, Jesus, who are in Philippi with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you through God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, shalom, grace and peace to you. I thank my God in remembrance of you. That's Philippians 1.3. Sometimes I'll sign that 
uh, on a note. Sometimes people, you'll sign that on your letter uh, where it says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every, every prayer of mine for you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He goes, I want to thank you for praying for me. I want to thank you for supporting me. I want, you to th- I want to thank you for partnering with me. Now, what does partnering mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that you have been giving. You, your tithes and offerings have made it possible. Thank you for supporting the gospel. Thank you for your tithes and offerings. Thank you for partnering. So the first part of this verse is a thank you for their partnership, for your support. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for supporting Silas and Timothy. Thank you for supporting the church. And he continues and he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you because you hold in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment, in the defense, and the confirmation of the gospel. So he's in prison writing this letter. And it's really interesting that Paul sees this as part of what God has orchestrated of what part of what he has divinely planned. He's in prison. In fact, that's a terrible place to be. You know what's interesting what um, God has done through men in prison? Um, there's a great book called Pilgrim's Progress. And in Pilgrim's Progress, it's a, a tremendous story about this journey of, of these, this follower who's following a guy named Great Heart. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a tremendous story. I encourage you to read it. But John Bunyan wrote this book when he was in prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor in Germany before and during World War II, one of the few pastors that stood up against Hitler and his regime, was even part of a plot to get rid of him and preached against him and stood against him. He was arrested. In a lot of his letters, in one of the best books I've ever read, The Cost of Discipleship, when I was in seminary, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in prison. Do you know the story of Martin Luther King Jr.? He, he was a really, really up-and-coming bright star in the African-American preaching community. And when he graduated from seminary, he was ready to take his first church. And there were two churches that extended an offer to him at his seminary. The first one was a prestigious, well-known, large church in Washington, D.C. There was another small, unknown church in Montgomery, Alabama called Dexter Road Baptist Church. Well, Martin Luther first, of course, went to the church in Washington, D.C. It was well-known. It was large. And he thought, you know... I feel like God has stirred my heart, and I feel like I could really make an impact. I could really make a difference in Washington, D.C. through this church. He went and he preached, and he thought everything was great, but the church decided, you know what, we're going to go with someone else a little more seasoned. And so Martin Luther King Jr. ended up accepting the small church in Montgomery, Alabama. Just a few weeks after he started preaching, though, something happened in Montgomery, Alabama. Rosa Parks decided she wasn't going to get up and go to the back seat that day. And from that was born the Civil Rights Movement. And guess where they started? Dexter Road Baptist Church and Martin Luther King Jr. would be the chief spokesman from that movement. You think God was choreographing that? You think he was working in and through? And guess where Martin Luther King Jr. 
wrote some of his most famous speeches in jail, in the Birmingham jail. See, God's not always against prison. Matter of fact, I was talking to one of our members uh, earlier, Bob Kulik, who does prison ministry. He goes, this week, he goes, man, I just had chills when you were saying that. He said, because I was sharing the gospel with these guys, and this one guy told me, he goes, I am so thankful God put me in prison. He goes, what? He goes, I'm so thankful. He said, I was running my life. I was such a mess. He said, I accepted Christ here. I've learned to read and write. He goes, I'm writing a book, and when I get out, I'm going to write another book. He goes, I don't think I'd ever turned around if I had if I had to found myself in prison. That's kind of crazy. How does God work through situations like that? But Paul has this maturity. He has this understanding, and we continue here. And in the next verse, we says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment. He said, here's my prayer for you. And this is a great prayer for us to pray for our children and for our friends, for our loved ones, for those we are seeking to lead to Christ, for those who are just coming to Christ. My prayer is that your love, I'm praying that you would grow in your love and it would abound more and more, that you would become more and more loving with others and with Christ himself. And with knowledge, I, I pray that you would grow in knowledge. And I want you to grow in truth. I want you to understand the scriptures. I want you to study to show yourself approved as a workman that need not be ashamed, that rightly can divide the word of truth, and in discernment. So I want you to grow in love. I want you to grow in knowledge. And I'm praying that you will grow in discernment, wisdom, common sense because there's a lot going to be going on around you and you want to be wise so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel my imprisonment it's advancing the gospel I'm sure you're concerned I know you've heard of what Nero's doing I know you know that, that, that they are against us, but I want you to know that this is not going to be the end of the gospel. This is not going to be the end of the faith, that actually God is working through. He's choreographing, so to speak. He's working through this situation itself to advance the gospel so that it may become known, become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that are in my imprisonment. It is for Christ. What's the big deal about the Imperial Guard? To be known by the Imperial Guard. Let me tell you about the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard was kind of West Point meets the Secret Service. It was the sharpest and the brightest military young men, and they they served directly under the Caesar, in this particular case, Nero. So he was their elite guard, and they were there to protect him and to do his bidding. There were 9,000 of them, and it's very hard to get in, and once you get in and once you serve faithfully, when you finish your 12-year term, you usually became a, a politician, a senator, or a general, or some kind of, you would have some kind of large role. This is probably one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful group in Rome at this time. And so the elite guard, Caesar's own people, one of them is being chained every six hours to Paul's leg. They're being chained together. And guess what Paul's probably doing? He's sharing the gospel. He's telling the story of how the Old Testament prophesied the Christ, the Messiah, and then how he had come and the miracles he'd done and how he had been crucified. But on the third day, he rose. And day after day after day, another imperial guard would come and take their 
their, their time, their spot, right across from the Roman consulate, right across from where Caesar lived. Here's, here's the place for political prisoners. And the way that Paul has gotten here is because he appealed to Caesar. He appealed to Caesar because he was going to be killed. You didn't just, if you were a Roman citizen, you were very careful about making this final appeal because if you appealed to Caesar, uh, there's a good chance unless he could find you innocent and he had a good reason to, you were going to be killed anyway. And even if not, even if you were innocent, you were probably going to be in jail for a couple of years. So this is what Paul has done. He's appealed to Caesar because there were those who were about to kill him and he appeals to Caesar and he wants to go to Rome. He had been praying he'd go to Rome and now they're escorting. He's getting a paid vacation, not a vacation, but he's going to pay to escort all the way to Rome. He's there in the prison, and now he's meeting, and every day he's spending time with the elite, uh, the elite guard, and he's sharing the gospel, telling the good news, and he's talking about how they all know why he's there. He's there for Christ. Most of them were there because of one of two reasons. Either they were concerned, uh, the, um, the Romans were concerned that they had not been faithful or that they were not to be trusted or they may have been working on something uh, that would go against the Roman government or they had appealed to the Roman government and whatever body of leadership was over them, they had gone over their heads. They were finding out, is there something we need to be concerned with with those who are in charge? Is there any kind of rebellion brewing? So that's why, uh, that's why Caesar would send his best over to guard these political prisoners. And so that's the situation that Paul's in. And the Bible says, and most of the brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We know that some of those in prison come to know Christ. Some of the guards later come to know Christ. And that begins to embolden some of the other believers, even though they know Paul is in prison. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul says this. He goes, look, I am put here. It's not an accident or a coincidence. I have been put here by the Holy Spirit. God has placed me here. If you're like me, I remember when I got put here in Fort Worth, Texas, I didn't think this is where God had me. I thought, I missed it. <laughs> I missed it. I should have kept going further west or something. I don't know. This can't be where God has put me? You ever feel that way? This can't be the job you're putting me in. You've put me in this family. You've put me with these children. <laughs> That's right. You've been put there. And Paul said, I know I've been put. And he continues and he says this. He says, the former proclaimed Christ for robbery, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, Christ will turn out for my deliverance. Now look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers, through the prayers of the Philippians, through the prayers of others, the Bible says, and the help of the Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit. The help of the Spirit. That word right there is the word we get chorus and unity. That's a word that ultimately we get in Latin for choreography. It starts right with the root right there. And so what does it mean? He's literally saying, through your prayers 
and the choreography as the moving and the setting of the Spirit. It is opening doors and closing doors. It is maneuvering in and through your life and around you. It is choreographing the Spirit as you pray. As you pray and the Spirit moves in concert, they begin to orchestrate. And as we do that, God begins to open up doors and His Spirit is moving. Even though it feels like I haven't been put here, it doesn't feel right. But through the prayers of others and through my prayers and through the Spirit, they connect together and they begin to orchestrate and they begin to choreograph my life in Christ for his glory. And the Bible says, as he continues, as it is my expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that will be full of courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, it's interesting to me, I was reading the other day, um, you know, Philippians is one of those books where um, people love to put the verse on the mug, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Grace and peace to you. Uh, I thank God of all my remembrance of you. We put them on plaques. We put them all over the place. Um, but what's interesting, nobody ever puts this verse on a, on a mug or a plaque. Nobody ever says, here you go. To live is Christ, to die is gain. God bless you. Happy graduation. You know what I mean? Nobody ever gives that to us. Because it doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy. But I would argue that this is the chief passage of the book of Philippians that this is probably one of the most important verses, if not the most important verse in Philippians. And Paul is saying this, and it's kind of a play on words. We can't see it in the English, but if we go back and look in the Greek, we'd see how these words actually rhyme. He said, to live is Christos, Christ. To live is Christos, and to die is kurdos. Christos, kurdos. Christos, Kurdos. Now, what does that mean? Well, Christos, we know what that means. That means the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ, to live in Christ. What does Kurdos mean? Kurdos means for profit, for gain. You see, in Paul's culture and in our culture today, here was the modern view of life. Here was the worldview, even for many Christians. To live is Kurdos, gain, profit, money. Materials, homes, cars, lake houses, prestige, power, comfort, pleasure. To live, that's what we wanted, to live for those things. And when we die, Jesus. We get to go be with Jesus. Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's saying no. He's saying no, to live is Christ, which may mean sometimes suffering, which may mean you're put in a position you don't want to be in, which may mean that sometimes you're with people that you had not anticipated being with, that life hasn't worked out exactly the way you want it. But you are to honor Christ and believe that Christ is orchestrating, that he's working, that he's choreographing in and through your life. And he can use this as all things can work together for good for those who love the Lord and called according to his purpose. That's to live for Christ. To say, God, I embrace it. I don't understand it. I don't feel it. I don't see it. But I believe it. Soren Kierkegaard, the great existentialist philosopher, said, you know, most of us, we want to understand life walking forward. But the truth of it is, we don't understand most of life unless we're looking backwards and we see the past. Now some of it makes sense and some of it will be totally make sense when we're with Christ. But 
It's hard to see it when I'm just looking right here. Why would God put me in prison? Why would God have me beaten? Paul was beaten. He was beaten because he was sharing the gospel. Why would those things happen? And he's saying, because for me to live is for Christ. Because it's given me a platform. Because it put me in jail. Because it allowed me to see this jailer come to Christ. It's for Christ. And if I die, then I gain. I get the life I've always imagined, I've dreamed. Every illness is corrected. Every defect is is made perfect. Every righteous desire and everything I ever truly wanted in my deepest hearts of desire is fulfilled. And I'm with Christ in life says peace and perfect. That's gain. That's my profit. This life is for Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. What about you? Would that be true of you? Would you say, my life is to live a Christ? Or is I currently living for gain, for profit? Teddy Roosevelt, um, who is often known for his heroism and for his big personality, his face on Mount Rushmore. Uh, and when he was president, matter of fact, he was the youngest president to ever seek an office. Kennedy was the youngest elected president. But actually, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was the vice president when William McKinley was assassinated. And then Teddy Roosevelt became the president. And he accomplished a lot of things. He, uh, he did a lot of things. Matter of fact, he was the only president to get a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, not only that, he got a Medal of Honor for his uh, service in the Army. Uh, he started the national parks that we know. He, matter of fact, he basically reserved to, just to have it always stay in its natural habitat over 100 million acres of forestry. The Grand Canyon's a part of that. There are a lot of great monuments, a lot of great historical sites. And the resource, he started the forestry department uh, that preserved our natural resources so that we wouldn't blow through them all and we wouldn't uh, desecrate uh, all the wildlife and the natural beauty that our country had so that people could, could enjoy it for a long time to come. He started the forestry service. And then he was, uh, he was the individual who finally made the Panama Canal happen. You know, France had been, trying to work, been working on it since the 1500s, and they just couldn't seem to figure it out how to take a 48-mile stretch between, between the Atlantic and the Pacific for boats to be able to travel through. And Teddy Roosevelt came on the board in 1905. He took over, he commissioned it, and, and it happened. And now we have the Panama Canal. So Roosevelt accomplished a lot, but who you don't really hear much about is his father, and his father, he called him, and many of his friends called him Greatheart. Remember I referred earlier to Pilgrim's Progress? There was a guy named Greatheart who was one of the chief admirable characters of that book and that story. And, and Teddy began to call his daddy Greatheart. You know why? Because when Teddy was born, he had severe asthma. And by the time he was 18 months old, the doctors didn't think he was going to be able to live. He would constantly choke and not be able to breathe. And that was before we had the allergy medicines. There was no EpiPens back then. And so the doctor told him, just do the best you can. Try to get him some food. But he was real sickly and weak and frail. He said, and, you know, just do what you can. Try to keep him upright as much as you can. And so at night, when they put young Teddy Jr. down, he would start to cough and gasp and choke. And so his dad, Teddy Sr., would pick him up. And he'd hold him, and he'd walk him around sometimes all night so that his lungs would clear. He'd pat him on the back, put his head on his chest, his heartbeat would beat, and he would just 
uh, whisper prayers in his hand. He would give him positive statements. He would teach him. He would pray scripture over him. He kept sending those positive messages to this weak, frail little boy when he's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It wasn't until he was almost 10 years old uh, that they felt like they kind of got out of the woods. And his dad, night after night, would give up his sleep and give up his sleep and give up his health so that Teddy could hear those words, so that Teddy could breathe, so that Teddy could have a hope and a future. As a matter of fact, his dad ended up dying at a young age. We don't hear that story. The real true great heart was Teddy Sr. You see, we only know about Teddy Jr. because of Teddy Sr. And we know about Christ because of, uh, and the Philippians knew, knew about Christ because of Paul and many of the others. And we know today Christ because of what Christ did for us. Because he took our frail humanity, he took our sin, and he took us in his arms, and he has walked us, he has stroked us, he has breathed life in us, he has spoken life in us, and he has given us grace and salvation. Not because of what we could do, just as Teddy Jr. couldn't do, but because of who he is and who he was planning on us being. That's the picture of the gospel right there. That we are sick and frail. We cannot save ourselves. Our righteousness, our deeds will never be sufficient before a holy God. But there is one who can pick us up, who can hold us. And because of his righteousness, it is applied to our account. And we are granted salvation to God Almighty. That's a great heart. That's to live as Christ, to die as gain. What about you? Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you, Lord. Uh, for the opportunity to pray, to pray the love, to pray, Father, the, dis- the discernment and the knowledge into our lives and into the lives of those we love. Thank you, Lord, for the places that you've put us, even though we would not willingly have chosen, even though many times we would love to escape. Thank you that you have put us where we are today and that you were working and you were choreographing our life. We thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, not only have you put us here, Lord, but, Lord, you have, also, you have also providentially choreographed our life. And you have given us the opportunity to live for Christ, to make the gospel known, to have purpose for this life, to bring you glory and for others to know you, and that one day we will gain an eternal perspective and an eternal reward. Let us not grow weary and quit in well-doing, But let us place our hope and faith in you, O Lord. In your name I pray, amen.